This episode brought to you by Audible, and today you can receive a free audiobook and 30-day free trial by visiting audibletrial.com slash sports. Listen to your audiobook anywhere, anytime. Taking sports to another level. Welcome to Rich Take on Sports, the sports podcast with life. Exploring the latest headlines and going behind the scenes with in-depth interviews, hearing personal stories and the impact of sports in their lives. Here's your host, Richmond Weaver. What time is it? This is episode 49. I am your host, Richmond Weaver, and glad you're listening through whatever format that might be. And thanks for being an investor by investing your time to listen. When it comes to improving in anything in life, not just in sports, there's a quote that many people know, practice makes perfect. And some have even expanded on this quote with perfect practice makes perfect. Either way, the concept is the same, that you have to put in the work to further hone your craft, whatever it might be. But some people will look at elite athletes and say, oh, they're just lucky because God touched them and gave them this unbelievable talent. And yes, in all reality, that's true. But what you don't see is all of the behind the scenes work and practice that's put in to improve. And many times we ask, who helps train these elite athletes? Well, our guest this episode, Irving Rowling, is just one of those guys helping train some of the elite NBA athletes. He's currently an assistant coach for player development with the Houston Rockets and has become one of the most well-regarded and well-respected player development coaches in the NBA, where he's trained some of the NBA's biggest stars like James Harden, Chris Paul, Kevin Durant, LeBron James, Kyrie Irving, Joe Johnson, Devin Booker, and the list goes on and on. After finishing his playing career at Southwestern Oklahoma State University, Irving was an intern for the Boston Celtics as an assistant video coordinator and earned his way to work with the Hornets during their time in New Orleans as well as the Phoenix Suns, and he's also founded Blueprint Basketball in Miami in 2011 for all types of off-season training for these elite NBA athletes. And now, episode 49 with Irving Rowland. All right, well, Irving, it's a pleasure speaking with you today, and it's exciting for me to be talking to you because a basketball guy getting to talk to another basketball guy, and uh, I, I promise I won't try to steal many of your secrets that you've utilized training some of the top talent in the NBA, though. <laughs> no worries, no worries. Well, as I mentioned, I know you've worked with some of the greatest players in the NBA right now, like a James Harden, Chris Paul, Kevin Durant, LeBron James, and the list goes on and on. But before all of this and before you became an assistant coach with the Houston Rockets, you were just a kid growing up in Oklahoma. So what was your childhood like and why did sports and especially basketball become a focal point in your life? Yeah, I... uh Grew up in Oklahoma City, of course, and uh, you know Oklahoma's more of a, a football football state as a whole. Um, you know, pretty much everywhere in the uh, lower Midwest and South is you know more football uh, country. And I started off, you know, football to this day. Um, it's probably my favorite sport to watch, uh, even though I get paid to watch basketball. But um, 
you know, I played basketball and football all the way up until about freshman year of high school. And then that's when I kind of figured that, you know, if I was going to play anything in college, it was going to be basketball. I wasn't ever the, uh, the most athletic. I wasn't the fastest, the quickest guy. So me trying to be a wide receiver, a defensive back probably wasn't going to work at the next level. And, uh, you know, basketball, you know, as, as a player also was probably more of my passion and high school level, it's kind of a year round thing. It's, uh, you know, school ball from the, the day school starts all the way up until it ends. And then, you know, when your playoffs and stuff is done in, in high school ball, then you're starting to play AAU and that's all summer. So it's really like a, a year round thing. And so, you know, I just figured that as competitive as this game was, you know, I needed to put all my focus into it. And, uh, you know, I, I come from a family of, you know, men that, love sports so all the men in my family were always outside as a kid and um you know you you develop these competitive uh attributes about yourself and you know that was that was just the way to go for me and did you have brothers and sisters that helped push you and motivate you or was it just neighborhood kids Uh, that helped you uncles and cousins and neighbors and um and things like that i have a younger sister but she didn't play ball but you know, me and my dad would get after it and play one-on-one all day. And uh, as anybody I could find in the neighborhood, one-on-one, that was my thing. And to this day, I feel like that's one of the best ways to develop uh, as a player. And, you know, that's, that's just what I did. That's how I spent my time. And you mentioned the year-round concept. So what are your thoughts then on the whole AAU concept of how they're specializing in sports and did you do that and what's your thought on kids these days just specializing on one sport and that's it i don't like the the whole specializing because i know kids that are in elementary school that have trainers and stuff like that and um you know i'm all for trying to get ahead it's nothing wrong with that and you know trying to develop your game but to say my kids in the second grade and we're just going to focus on basketball is crazy to me. I think um, if anything, if you look at some of the top football programs, for instance, uh, Oklahoma, Alabama, uh, Ohio State, a lot of their top players are multi-sport kids, you know. And there's so many things that you learn from other sports. There's so many, you know, movements and and you know, training methods in other sports that can help in the sports you're, you know, you might end up playing. So you just don't know. And, you know, a lot of these kids, they start specializing in a sport too young. And the next thing you know, they get older and they, they despise the sport, you know, because it becomes too much like a, like a job. And I don't think it's fair to just throw kids into a box, you know, let them do everything and try to figure out what it is they love. And half the time, I feel like, you know, it's these parents that are trying to live through their kids anyway, you know? That's right. I, yeah, and I, I definitely see a lot of that as well as a parent of teenagers and especially my middle child. He's on the JV basketball uh-huh. team, and there's some of his teammates that it's this concept that they can only be doing basketball, and I just think they need to be much more well-rounded. And it sounds like your childhood might have been that way as well. Yeah, football and basketball, you know, were the things that I did. And, you know, I just think um, the physicality of football, 
the aggression and, and, and all that stuff, it, it helps you in basketball, you know, being more physical and, you know, whether it's rebounding or, you know, defense or whatever, you know, all that stuff kind of transfers over. And so it can help you, in, you know, in the sport that you might end up playing in the long run. And so you continue with your basketball career into college. So was that always a primary mm-hmm. focus that when you made that decision to give up football to focus on basketball was that the driving force because you wanted to play in college yeah I mean I think all of us as athletes you know you want to play at a high level and um you know I definitely wanted to play at the division one level going into my senior year of high school I hadn't had any you know real big offers or anything and so I went to a camp out in Los Angeles, the the Pump Brothers were putting it on. And so I go out there, and it's like day three of the camp, and I go up for a dunk, and it's on a fast break, nobody's around. The kid comes from behind me trying to block it, and it was so stupid because, I mean, it's a camp, like nobody's getting a trophy, but it's like an exposure type thing. And he tried to block my dunk from behind, and I ended up breaking my leg the same way Paul George did a couple years ago. Wow. And so this is 1998. Um, sports science and you know rehabilitation methods weren't as advanced as they are now. And initially they told me I would never play basketball again. And so I'm going into my senior year. Like I said, I don't have a you know a scholarship offer like that yet, and uh, it was it was pretty devastating, and so Lord willing, or Lord bless me, I was able to uh, rehab. And five six months later, I was out on the court. And my senior year, because like I still wasn't a hundred percent, I was just able to be on the floor. I couldn't jump, and so I ended up shooting the most three pointers in the state of Oklahoma that year because I couldn't do anything else. But luckily. Um, I was fifth in the state in three-point percentage. And so I was able to go to junior college in Oklahoma. And I played there for two years. And then after that, I went and played at uh, Southwestern Oklahoma State University. And I graduated from there in 04. How difficult was that to hear those doctors telling you that you might not ever play again? Man, my leg popped out of place. Uh, my body straight, my foot completely turned around and I, I didn't shed a tear. I was just like, you know, it, it hurt like crap, but you know, I dealt with it. When the doctor told me I never played again, I mean, you would have thought, uh, Santa Claus canceled Christmas for life. I lost <laughs> my, all my puppies. Like I, it was, it was the worst day ever. It was the worst day ever. And how did you deal with that then? Yeah. How did you deal with that type of information that you've got to process as a teenager like that well you know what my, my father was with me out there in la so we went to one doctor he said that went to another doctor um he said maybe two years and then we went to a third doctor and he told me um maybe eight months so i'm like all right cool i'm gonna go with the eight months so <laughs> yeah exactly home, have my surgery they put a metal plate and i still have it in my leg to this day uh, metal plate in my leg. They put uh, screws in my leg to hold it together. A couple months later, uh, I got the screws out, and it was crazy because that was July. 
when I got hurt. And then in August, that's when school started. And so, like I said, in high school, you start basketball the first day of school in August. And so I'm the best player on the team and they're out there practicing. I can't do nothing. I got this walking boot on. I'm losing my mind. And so I wasn't supposed to be putting all my weight on my leg. But, I mean, you put a kid in the gym and tell him not to shoot. Like, that's kind of hard. So I'm in there every day, like, just kind of shooting uh, standstill shots. And what happened was I put too much weight on that screw and I broke it in half. And I didn't know it. And so I go to get the screw out and they're like, crap, only half of it came out. So they had to go in another procedure to take the other half out from the other side. So, you know, it, it was it was a pretty crazy ordeal, but I got through it. Did that set you back even more, though, having to have like that extra surgery to get the other half of the screw yeah, out? Set me back, I think it set me back a couple weeks, but it wasn't anything major. Then how did you evolve and adapt into looking at, I want to continue playing, I want to be the best at something, so I'm going to focus just on three-point shooting because I, I don't have the jumping ability like I used to. So how did you dedicate yourself into focusing just on being a three-point shooter then? Yeah, it, it was, I mean, I could always shoot the ball pretty well, but now you know, with me not being able to jump, that was the only thing I could do. And because I was like a, you know, bigger guard for high school, I could, you know, get separation. I could, you know, create space for my, and I don't really need a lot of room to shoot the ball or didn't, you know, back then. So I, uh, I was able to be successful that, you know, my coach ran a lot of plays for me. My guys got me open and I was able to get them up. Thank God. And did you model your game after any players in the NBA or college that you looked up to? No, nah, I mean, growing up, I was a huge Chauncey Billups fan. Um, Chauncey Billups, Steve Nash, and, you know, Baron Davis was a guy I was never going to be as explosive as, but those three guys, Baron Davis, Steve Nash, Chauncey Billups, were, you know, my favorite three players. I mean, you know, I was never going to be six six like Michael Jordan and be able to do the things that he was doing, but those three guys, were you know the guys that I that I really loved, and then when I got hurt, it really it really kind of made me a smarter basketball player because you know my dad always says like athleticism is a gift and a curse because you know you look at a lot of high school athletes and if you're bigger and more athletic than everybody, you can kind of rely on that your whole life, and then you get to the NBA or you get to college, and it's like crap. It's a lot of athletes up here. You know what I mean? But you've never been forced to think the game. And so you look at guys that are so so athletic, they're constantly gambling, going for steals or jumping for pump fakes because they feel like they can they got a little more room for error. But me, I couldn't really move like that. So I'm staying down on shot fakes shot fakes. I'm more solid on defense because I know if I gamble for the steal, I'm not gonna be able to recover and get back in the play. Um, and then just my overall game, I had to think more, you know, because I didn't have the physical tools that I had before. And do you have times when you think about what could have been if that guy doesn't try to block my shot? Oh, my gosh. I think about it literally every day. Um, and not like I'm just this bitter old man like you know, <laughs> Uncle Rico and Napoleon Dynamite. But it's like, I, you know, my, my leg, I feel it every day. And so that triggers up stuff. And I think about, you know, my last high school game and when I got beat out of the playoff. Like, I think about that stuff almost every day. 
I can imagine. And is that somewhat of motivation for you in what you're doing now then? Yeah, I think, I think it's like, uh, I think it's kind of like I have a new lease on life, like a whole new focus because, you know, when you're a player, like you're working out, you're in the gym and, you know, that's your grind, you know? And so now my grind is different. And obviously that's trying to help, you know, other players develop and other players get to, you know, where they want to get in this game. And so trying to share knowledge and, and stuff like that. So it's, you know, it's growing up, never thought I'd be in this position because, you know, growing up in Oklahoma, we didn't have a professional team. You know, they just got the thunder, I think, in what, 09 or something like that. So uh, I never thought I would be in this position because it was just the NBA was so far from my reality. But now that I'm here, it's just like you got to take full advantage. That's right. And that pathway into the NBA, I know, started with an internship with the Boston Celtics. So describe how that happened in that first year of your interning with an NBA team. Yeah, so going into my, going into my senior year of college, um, there was a guy named Dave Hopler. He's, to me, the best shooter in the world. Um, I met Dave at, at, Dave, uh, at the Pump Brothers camp in L.A. when I was in high school, and he was there doing um, workouts for guys that wanted to work out before the camp every day at 6 a.m., and I would work out with him in the mornings. And so he was doing a camp my senior year of college. So I go to Chicago to his camp, and it was all high-level Division One guys. And then I was there. I was the only Division Two guy. So they put me in a room with one of the coaches uh, from the Boston Celtics. So we're roommates at this camp. We become really good friends. I'm actually, he's actually with the Dallas Mavericks now, and we play Dallas tonight. I'll see him in a few hours, but he's one of my best friends to this day. And so he promised me an internship. I graduated from college in May, moved to Boston in September, and uh, it was Doc Rivers' first year there, 2004. And, you know, here I am. I'm an assistant video coordinator, and, uh, it was my pathway to, to where I am now. And, and many people will look at your path and now will say, man, Irving, he's got it made. He's working with James Harden, yeah. Houston Rockets, and you know that's what I want to do. But I don't think they really understand the work that got you there. So describe some of those challenges oh, your first year. I mean, you're interning with the Celtics, but you're working the night shift at the Westin Hotel. Yeah, yeah, that's what it, it's so crazy, and I think it's like it's like a slap in the face and and stuff because I, I get people that they see what I'm doing and they say, "Oh yeah, you know, I think I'm gonna try to do something, do like what you're doing," <laughs> and they have no clue. They have no clue. First off, what I do now, they just see like, "Oh, he's with James Harden and Chris Paul and all these guys," and they just think like, "I just hang out and kick it and you know live the life," but. They, you know, they don't know what I do now, and they definitely don't know what I had to do to get to this point. And so, 2004, 2005, you know, 22 years old, I moved to Boston. Don't know anybody. I'm working 60 hours a week for free as as an unpaid video intern because back then in the NBA you didn't have to pay interns. I'm working for free, and there was a Western hotel two miles away from the practice facility. So at night I would get off. I would probably take a nap in the video room 
when everybody would leave the office. And then at 10 p.m., I'd go to the hotel and work room service from 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. Um, at the time, we had a center on our team in Boston named Mark Blunt. And he used to, you know, go to the hotel a lot. And he knew people there. He would go eat there a lot. And he put in a good word for me, helped me get the job. And I worked room service. And that's how I paid bills um, the, the entire year. So it would be like two, three days at a time that I wouldn't go home. The only time I would really go home was if the team was on a road trip. So I wouldn't have to be in the office all day. And, you know, I could kind of hang out at home, take a, you know, sleep at home and then go to work at 10 p.m. So it was kind of crazy. So that is a significant grind that you're putting in. And what were some of your responsibilities with the Celtics, though, as this assistant video coordinator? And, I mean, what was a typical day for you while you were there with the Celtics? Yeah, so, like, you know, when I say video coordinator, people think that I'm, like, walking around with a video camera and, like, filming games and practices, uh, you know, with a with a video camera on my shoulder. And that's not the case. A video coordinator's job, you have a laptop. Um, you have a laptop, and we have all these uh, this software and, and stuff where the, the games are streamed to our computer, and we break down the, the games possession by possession, offense, defense, um, separating the pick and rolls, transition, uh, sideline out of bounds, baseline out of bounds, whatever. Because in the old days, you know, you had VHS, you have to fast-forward, rewind. So, you know, if somebody wants to see something in the fourth quarter that happened at the three-minute mark, you're fast-forwarding for days. You know what I mean? So now, somebody, if you know, halftime, if James Harden comes in and say, hey, I want to see that pick-and-roll where they trapped me in the second quarter, we can just click right on it, and it takes two seconds as opposed to having to push fast-forward, rewind. So... My my job as an assistant, I usually had to work on the opponent's game. So what we do in the NBA, most teams, they work from either three games out or five games out, depending on how many times they played that opponent. So, like tonight, we're playing the Dallas Mavericks, and our video coordinator would have broken down the Dallas Mavericks' last five games. And our defensive coordinator would look at those five games, look at the different situations as far as, their most uh, frequent play calls and things of that nature so that we can put together our scouting report to show our team. And so um, that was my job every day to break down our opponents last next opponents, last five games in the offense and defense. So the offensive coordinator, defensive coordinator can go in and put to, together their edits to show the team before we play them. Were you just loving what you were doing with the Celtics, regardless of knowing that you were working the night shift at the Weston Hotel? Were you just in heaven with basketball at that point? Um, I think it's one of those things where, like, you're so I was so locked into what I was trying to do and what my focus was that you know there's there's sayings about you know falling in love with the destination. And if you fall in love with the destination, you lose sight of the work that's going to get involved to get to the destination, and then it, it becomes tough. So you have to fall in love with the grind first. You know what I mean? Like the day-to-day for Floyd Mayweather, if he's fighting in April, there's going to be a lot of mornings where he doesn't want to get up and run five miles or go to the gym and hit the heavy bag for an hour. You know what I mean? So 
you can't just be so fixated on, okay, boom, I'm going to get this contract at the end of the season. Like, I, I was so locked in that I didn't even think about it. But, like, thinking back on it, at my age now, it's like, man, I don't know if I could do that right now, you know? <laughs> it's so crazy. Like, I get people that DM me on Instagram or friends from back home, like, man, yeah, uh, I don't know what I'm, you know, what my next job is. I think I'm probably going to try to do something like you. And I'm like, what? Like, <laughs> at 22, it was all right because, you know, I didn't have any bills. I don't have any kids, like whatever, but some of these people like married with kids and I'm like, so you just gonna shut everything down and financially just wing it, you know what I mean, to chase this dream. I mean it's it's, it's tough. Without a doubt, and I don't think they understand what you're talking about, that grind and falling in love with that grind first. Now was there ever an aspect of you wanting to be a coach as far as why you took this internship or was it just an opportunity of being in the NBA and you would see wherever it went from there. Yeah. So when I first got in, I had no clue of what I really, uh, what I really wanted to focus on. I, um, I knew I, I, I either wanted to coach or I wanted to work in the front office and I wasn't really sure. Um, but once I got my foot in the door, I knew that the front office right now, maybe long term, I could work in the front office, but right now I just love being on the floor. And if you look at my, my social media, man, like I've traveled the world and it doesn't matter where you put me in the world. If I'm on the court, I'm happy. You know, like just being on the basketball court, that's my happy place. So I'm, I'm good, you know, and I just think right now where I am, I just enjoy so much being on the floor with guys and helping guys get better that, you know, that that's, that's where I need to be right now. Maybe long term or, I have a wife and kids or something like that. I'd probably maybe want to be in the front office and not travel as much as I do now. So, you know, I think that's where I am right now. And when do you find downtime then? It's funny you ask that. Um, people ask me all the time about that as far as like, uh, so when do you get a vacation? and uh, When do you get this and that? And I'm like, I don't really, I don't, I don't even think about that stuff. And, you know, I know a lot of people, uh, one of my favorite rappers is Big Sean. He has a line, he says, you know, forget a vacation, I feel better at work. And it, some some people, it sounds cliche or it sounds corny or something, I don't know. But I don't even, I, I honest to God, don't think about it. I mean, I know you need to take time for yourself, but with what I do, I don't even consider it work, honestly. I mean, yeah, like I'm around dudes all day that have all this built-up testosterone and half the time we want to, you know, kill each other. Um, just get annoyed with seeing all these dudes all the time, you know. But uh, so it's like, yeah, sometimes, like, yeah, I just want to get away. But, you know, with what we do, the way we travel, um, like I'm about to meet up, you know, with one of my childhood best friends when I get done here with you and then we go to New Orleans tomorrow and, you know, I spent five good years there and I have people there that I, you know, love and care about and want to see. And so it's like the way we move around, you know, I'm constantly getting to see friends and family. And, you know, at the end of the day, my job is basketball. So it's not like, you know, it's not like I'm doing something that, you know, I hate or I, you know, I don't enjoy. So I, I don't really, I don't even really think about it. And it's so hard in our, in our profession because, 
you don't know when the season's going to be over. You know what I mean? Like the first round of the playoffs starts around April 15th and the, the NBA finals is all the way up until, you know, the middle of June. And so you got that two week window and then there's summer league and you know what I mean? It's so hard to plan stuff ahead. So I don't even, I don't even really think about it. Well, many people would say that you've hit the gold mine because you've found your passion and somebody's willing to pay you for your passion and what this you describe as work. So it's easy for you to just, like you said, fall in love with it. And after that time, yeah, after that time with New Orleans, though, you founded Blueprint Basketball in Miami in 2011. So describe that path and why you focused on creating a training program for these athletes in Miami. So when I was in New Orleans uh, with the the Hornets at the time, I worked for Tim Grover in the offseason, Michael Jordan's old trainer. So every summer when Summer League would finish, I would go to Chicago, and Mike Procopio, who got me started in the NBA in Boston, he left the Celtics to go work for uh, Tim Grover. And so I would go work with those guys, and we were working with everybody from Dwayne Wade, Quentin Richardson, Mike Finley, Juwan Howard, um, a lot of pros that were based out of uh, Chicago and, you know, even around the league would come train there. And that's where I kind of picked up, you know, all my player development philosophies was from those two guys, Mike Procopio and Grover. And, you know, Tim kind of started the whole workout guy um, thing. You know, Tim Gergerich is, is huge, but he's always kind of worked for teams for the most part. But, like, as far as having, you know, a player having their guy, um, that they trained with in the offseason separate from the team. Tim Grover was one of the guys that kind of started that and made it huge. And so, you know, you had other guys in L.A., you had other guys across the country that had started things, so nobody had anything going in Miami like that. And that was the same year that LeBron moved there. and You know, a lot of people were starting to flock to South Florida. So um, because I had a relationship with Kevin Durant, because I have a – relationship with Joe Johnson, um, we started July 4th, 2011 at University of Miami, and my first workout, you know, we have it on film, I think it's on uh, YouTube, on my YouTube channel, but um, I started with those two guys, and then it kind of ballooned from there, and then that year was the year of the lockout, and so during the course of that summer, I had maybe like 40 different guys um, come in and out of Miami that I worked with, and so I did that for for three years, and it was you know it was pretty huge. I had um, Kyrie Irving, Joe Johnson, uh, Kevin Durant, Serge Ibaka, James Harden, um, Rudy Gay, Sean Livingston. I had a number of guys, and uh, I kind of got a, a a name for that. And then from there, I'll end up going to the Phoenix Suns, and Ryan McDonough, who's the general manager there, general manager there was with me in Boston. And so he brought me to Phoenix to join Jeff Hornacek's staff from there in 2013. Why leave Miami then to go to Phoenix when it sounds like you're starting to build a name for yourself with these NBA players? Yeah, it, it was one of those things where it was great in the summer when I have all my guys, but during the season, it's tough because you don't have anything going on. And, 
you know, most guys are working out with their teams and their coaching staff, so it's not like they really need you to come out to their teams and do individual work. And, uh, you know, there's only so many kids and stuff like that you can train during the year. So it becomes kind of hard during the course of the, the regular season. And I really miss being with a team and working towards a goal and stuff like that. So it kind of made sense uh, stability-wise. And do you think it will evolve that these teams will try to start having year-round opportunities just within their team for their players? Or will it still be the situation where in the offseason guys might have their own you know, individual uh, skills development coach? I think both are healthy. Like if, if you have in the NBA, the, the norm is to have like your rookies and first, second year guys. As soon as they get drafted, they're pretty much locked in with the team year round. Like they'll get their time off right after the season, but then they come right back and start working with the coaches to get ready for summer league. Um, and they're with the team most of the time. So they don't really have a lot of time for individual work with uh, with an outside guy. But once guys become vets, I think it's almost healthy to have that second voice um, because the stuff with the team can kind of get monotonous and become overkill. And You know, for like me and James Harden and, and Chris Paul, I mean, these guys are, you know, elite Hall of Fame players. So it's not a lot that, that we're doing that's, any different for me it's just like you know keeping them sharp and stuff like that where the younger guys is more of a development uh type stage for them so it's a little different you know and so what is your player development philosophy then and do you focus on a lot of nutrition or certain training techniques or is it just the fundamentals of the game and playing and getting on the court all court stuff yeah, I, I work on all court stuff. Um, anything on the floor is, is is what I focus on, and then you know our guys, for the most part, have their own nutritionist or strength and conditioning coach that you know will focus on all that other stuff. But it's very important that you know myself, like for instance, uh, me and James Harden, we went to China right before the season, and you know it's very important that me and the strength coach are constantly in communication because for me, you know, strength and conditioning, that's their job to get this guy in shape. You know what I mean? For me, I'm trying to get you better and keep you sharp on the basketball court. I think it's counterproductive uh, if, if a strength coach really put a guy through it in the weight room or whatever, and then I come in and try to kill him on the court because now I'm not going to get anything out of him and now you start developing bad habits because they're so fatigued that, you know, things aren't working right and they're trying to force up shots and stuff because they're so tired. So if I know that strength coach killed him in the weight room, I might go a little lighter on the court and then vice versa, you know? That's right. So going back to all-star players, I have to ask, what do you think were the biggest snubs then for this year? Uh, Chris Paul. Chris Paul without question. Because the narrative changes every year. And, you know, I won't go too far into it, but, you know, James Harden with the MVP award. A couple years ago, Golden State is first in the West, Houston second in the West. And if you look at who James Harden had on his team, eight of those players, this is two years ago. This ain't 1999. 
two years ago, I think eight of the players that were on that team aren't even in the NBA anymore. And he led that team to the Western Conference Finals. Stephen Curry played with two other All-Stars. James Harden had better numbers and was still playing the two-guard primarily and still averaged more assists. But because Golden State was first in the West, they gave it the MVP award to, to Stephen. Fast forward to last year, James Harden, 2,000 points, 2,000 points, 2,000 points assisted on, uh, third third best record in the league, doesn't win MVP. You know, it's like every year, okay, winning matters. Okay, no, no, individual numbers matter. And so if you look at guys that made the all-star team, there's a couple guys that have better, you know, overall statistics. But as far as affecting wins and losses, we have the second best record in the entire NBA and went 2-1 and one versus the team with the best record in the NBA. And with our three main guys, we haven't lost a game yet. And that's, you know, one of those three guys is Chris Paul. And so there's no way you can say that these other guys that made it, no names, but these a couple of these other guys that did make it, are affecting wins and losses for their teams or even making guys better on their team. Um, and I think, I think something should be said about that. I agree that the measuring stick, it seems, for the NBA, it changes every single year for these awards. Every year. It's just there's no rhyme or reason for the decisions that are made, and it's just like you deal with it, it is what it is. And I also contend that the NBA is different than college because in college, most of the superstars there, they're not playing against NBA-level talent each night. So they can somewhat take a night off. And and I think especially on the defensive side. But in the NBA, if you do that, then the guy you're guarding, he's going to go for 20, and you're not going to be playing much longer. Uh, but what's your opinion on – the transition from college to the NBA, especially in this age of the the one and dones. Yeah, one and done. So I don't want to get too far off topic, but I, I feel like kids shouldn't have to go to college. I feel like uh, I feel like the NBA should be more like baseball, in a sense where if you want to come out of high school and go straight to the NBA, you can. But if you're not ready to play, you go straight to the G League. Instead of putting guys on NBA rosters just for the sake of this guy has potential. Because then that that way you keep the league from getting watered down. So if a guy comes out of high school, he's not ready to play, don't make him the 14th, 15th man or even throw him in the rotation. Put him in the G League, raise the G League salaries, and make it more attractive to play there and allow those guys to get better. And then in college, what will happen is these coaches will have guys for at least three years now, and you can develop actual programs and legit teams instead of having to rebuild every year because you don't know who's leaving and, you know, trying to recruit kids that are probably going to come for one year and they don't know if they're going to come because they don't know if the next guy's leaving. You know what I mean? So I think it would improve the play of college as well as the NBA. I agree with you 100%, and I still don't understand why we can't evolve into that type of model because I think the foundation is there. As you mentioned, you've got college, you've got the NBA, and you've got the G League. You've got 
plenty of opportunities for these players to develop wherever they might fit at that particular time of their career. And I'm hoping something does change um, from that perspective. Now, going back to your training aspect and doing this individual training for athletes, these NBA players, I should say, and now being on a team with the Houston Rockets, do guys look at you in in terms of uh, a conflict of interest by saying, hey, Irving, we appreciate what you're doing here with James Harden, but we don't need you to be focused on helping these other players on these opposing teams get better because it's only going to hurt us. Yeah, I don't really, I don't, I don't really do that anymore. Uh, working with other NBA players in the off season, um, you know, I'm in the off season. I'm with James every day of the week. Um, we're in LA a lot, which is where you know a lot of our players on our team live. So when we're there in California. Um, we'll get the group together, and whether it's Chris Paul, Trevor Ariza, Ryan Anderson, uh, whoever, we'll get all those guys together and work out or go play at UCLA. So, um, you know, I'm 100%, you know, Houston Rockets and, you know, my main couple guys that I work with, and that's that. So is Blueprint Basketball, is that still going, or has that evolved into something else? Yeah, yeah. so right now uh, my business is just mainly focused on doing kids' camps, um, this year, probably do Oklahoma City, probably Dallas area, and uh, eventually the goal is to you know be doing a couple more cities and uh, and just try to keep building it. And will you have NBA players come and help you with these camps for these kids? Um, because my thing with that, like if you look at a lot of uh, a lot of NBA players, like they'll do camps, right? And what'll end up happening is kids will come to the camp for the sole purpose to meet those players and get autographs. And really it's just a babysitting session. You'll have 200 kids in the gym and nobody's getting better because there's not even enough, you know, space to move around in the gym because you got all these kids trying to come to a meet and greet. And so for me, that's not what we're trying to accomplish. You know, I could have, I got relationships with players around the league that would come you know, do an appearance, but for me, I want kids to get better. And the only way I can do that is if we have, you know, smaller groups and, uh, you know, my coaches can really get out and touch every kid and reach every kid um, that that's in attendance. So if, you know, if I had a player come, then it'd be like too many kids and not, not enough work getting done. So I'm, I don't think it'll ever be that. Okay. So you just want to focus on, we're teaching basketball and the fundamentals, and we're all going to be out here working hard. Absolutely. I'm good with that. So who's the hardest working player in the league then outside of James Harden? Because I know you're well ingrained with his uh, work ethic and what he's been able to do. But outside of James Harden, who else do you see is going above and beyond that the public doesn't really understand? Um, you know, you look at Chris Paul, he's not – the most physically intimidating person on the court. But, you know, I've worked with Chris since he was a rookie. And, you know, I don't think people understand what he does on a day-to-day basis, you know, to keep himself at an elite level, you know, like whether it's bringing his nutritionist on the road so that she can tell him, you know, what he needs to be eating throughout the day when when he's traveling on the road and away from his chef. 
You know what I mean? So he can keep his body at a certain body fat percentage and, and, and stuff like that. Like these guys, these guys' attention to detail is so on point. Uh, there's, there's, there's a reason why they are where they are. And I don't think fans won't really understand that because they, they see the games on TV, but they don't understand, for instance, the travel schedule, you know, like getting into a city at 2 a.m. and then having to get up for a meeting in the morning or go to shoot around or, uh, you know, having to do it all over again the next day. Like it's a real grind. And, um, you know, I don't, I don't think people really notice that because, okay, you just see the game on ESPN TNT and then you just see it again next night. You don't really see what goes on in between that. And uh, it kind of gets lost, but these guys, the work they do day in and day out uh, to stay all stars, to stay, you know, future hall of famers is, is unreal. And Irving, as we're wrapping up here, you've been able to share a lot of your journey and, insight in the NBA. So now looking at the whole big picture where you are today and what have you learned from playing sports and the impact of sports in your life? Yeah, I think, uh, I think for me, um, as well as a lot of people that I've, you know, I've come in contact with, there's so much that you learn from sports, all sports, uh, about life in general because of the ups and downs. And then how you deal with the ups and downs. And, um, you know, I know, like I said before, I don't want to sound uh, cliche, but, you know, Mike, Mike D'Antoni, our head coach, he has a saying, so what, what's next? And so we laugh about it sometimes, but it's, it's so true. Like we lose a game, especially a game we shouldn't lose um, or give up a big lead and lose. You know, those, that, those types of things happen. You know, we play 82 games a season. And it's going to be ups and downs, peaks and valleys, whatever. How you respond to it is going to determine, you know, your future. And so a lot of people, they get hit and they stay down. But in sports, it's just like life. You're going to go through stuff. How do you deal with it? Do you let it affect you the next day? You have to have a short memory, you know what I mean? Because this is a marathon and not a sprint. So, uh, you know, I don't want to keep throwing out a bunch of – you know, chalkboard material, but from sports, you kind of, kind of, you kind of learn like who you are in a sense and what you can handle and, you know, how you can deal with adversity and stuff like that. And so it's been huge for me in my development as a, as a young man. And what other words of wisdom would you like to share that has meant a lot to you or just life advice that you've leaned on over the years? Yeah, I think for me, another thing uh, is, you know, your character. Um, Your character is going to take you further than your talent will. Um, There's a lot of guys that, you know, you you look at in this league that may may not be the most talented guys, but they've stuck in this league and stuck on rosters because of their character and the value that they bring to that locker room and, you know, being able to help hold a locker room together through adversity and things like that, where there's guys that's probably more talented than them that are out of the league because they didn't have that. And they were bad, uh, bad character guys that uh, could be bad influence on, you know, younger players coming up and stuff like that. So no matter what you're doing in life, business, sports, whatever, I think uh, the content of your characters is huge. 
Well said, Irving, and I greatly appreciate your time being on the podcast today, and best of luck with the Rockets trying to dethrone the Warriors in the West. I appreciate it, brother. Now, this just exemplifies how hard work and sacrifice go hand in hand, and when given an opportunity, you better make the most of it, like Irving did, leaving his familiar surroundings in Oklahoma to be an unpaid intern in Boston. And as many of you know, there's just a few differences between Oklahoma and Boston, but he took that chance because of an opportunity, and now all of his dedication and sacrifices, like working the night shift at that hotel in Boston, have paid off, but his journey is still going with his vision for blueprint basketball and its evolution. And from my vantage point, this is all just the beginning for him. Now that finishes episode 49. And remember, focus forward so we don't live in the past. All the best, everyone. You've been listening to Rich Take on Sports, the sports podcast with life. Visit richtakeonsports.com to subscribe and catch up on any episodes you might have missed. You can also follow us on Twitter at Rich Takes Sports. Thanks for listening. 